welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the Bee Gees and Wind of Change from their main course album from 1975. That was such a pivotal period for the band and Blue Weaver was there helping to shape the Brothers Gib in this new direction. Welcome to the second part of the Strange Brew Podcast with Blue Weaver where we cover his Bee Gees years into the Pet Shop Boys and finishing off with more on the excellent new album from Straub's Settlement. So let's hear the second part of my chat with Blue Weaver. What, oh, actually, while I was doing the mop thing, um, Dennis was calling me up saying, look, uh, the Bee Gees are really having a problem. You know, we're doing these gigs. We've done a great album with the Reef Martin, but it's not selling. Um, it's costing a fortune, the Bee Gees with an orchestra to do gigs. The audiences aren't so good anymore. And Robert said, something has to happen. Something has to change. Dennis, while they were they were in Tokyo, and he said, I spoke, spoke with Barry and said, look, why don't we get a band together? Why don't we get a small unit and try and work out something new? You know, Morris on bass, you, you're playing rhythm guitar, Alan on lead, me on drums. And he said, I know this keyboard player. He said, I played with him before in, in, in bands. You know, uh, I'd met Morris, I think, years before, or they knew of Amen Corner, definitely, because of, and we were in the charts at the same time. So Dennis kept phoning me up and saying, oh, look, come and meet the Bee Gees. You know, we've we got to get something new together. Oh, no, I'm having a great time. I'm in a rock and roll band at last. You know, I was with Mott then. And um, this went on for some months. And, uh, uh, and in the end, Ian said, you know, he was leaving the band. So Mott split up as they were Mott the Hoople then. So Dennis finally persuaded me to go over the Isle of Man for a weekend and meet Barry and meet Morris and Robin and everything. And I went over to the Isle of Man on a Friday night. It was in, in August, I remember. We sat down. We had a curry. <laughs> we had a few drinks. <laughs> I smoked in those days, so we smoked a little. And we had a great time over the Friday and Saturday. And on the Sunday, we're talking. We got, I got on with, with Barry and the guys. And and I thought, yeah, it'd be great to have a, a group together like that where we can sit and write and and try and come up with something new. And Stigwood had, had spoken to me after that. Actually, uh, l- let me jump back a little bit. Yeah. So we had a good time. So uh, we'd had a curry, some drinks, and smoked, and uh, I'm leaving for the plane on the Sunday evening to go back to London. And Huey, the, the Gibbs father, was there. And he said, "Ear lad, we haven't heard him. We haven't heard you play." <laughs> so a similar scenario: yeah. front room, old piano. <laughs> he said, "Come on, now, Huey. I, I, I know it'd been in a dance band. He'd been a drummer or something." So I'm sitting there. I thought, "What can I play?" And I thought, "Oh well, it worked before. I played the same Dave Brubeck piece that I played <laughs> for Straws." And Huey said, "Oh yeah, that's great, Brubeck. Yeah, okay, all right. You're in the band, you know." <laughs> That was it. I passed the audition and um, they said, we're going to Miami on January the 1st. Arif Martin is producing. We're staying at 461 Ocean Boulevard in Miami. Do you want to come? You know, Yeah, of course. Okay. How can I refuse? So I went to Miami January the 1st. We flew out. We're staying in a 461 Ocean Boulevard and recording with Arif Martin. But we had to write some songs first. And by this time, the Stigwood had said to me, look, they've got to change. You know, they can't keep doing 
the same sort of stuff. We can't use an orchestra anymore. You know, we've got to come up with something new. Well, anyway, just to sort of get into it, Barry had written, or the guys had written a song. The first song was another ballad called Was It All In Vain? And it was. <laughs> but I, I've actually got a copy of it. I, you know, we, we, I, I've got a re- we, we never recorded it, but I, I had a cassette up one night while we were playing and, and rehearsing it. And um, we've got that. And then we did another ballad called um, Your Love Will Save the World. Uh, but by this time, I got a synthesizer into, into, the, into the house and I was listening to Stevie Wonder and, and I, I was listening to Living in the City and I thought, yeah, this is a type of thing the Bee Gees should be doing, something with the beat, you know, like this. And um, we got into the studio and we, we trying to remember what the first tracks we cut. I can't remember the sequence of events, but then suddenly they, they, they'd written a song called Wind of Change and we played it and I played organ on it and things. And then I put a synthesizer part on it, like a pulse. And we said, wow, yeah, that is a wind of change. You know, it's sort of taken the Bee Gees into another direction. It was a little bit soulful, but it was sort of danceable as well. But it was a different type of sound for the Bee Gees again. So then one night, uh, Barry said, oh, we, we, every, every evening we drive over this bridge to get to the studio. And in Miami, they have metal drawbridges that open up to let the yachts through and let the big ships through. And these are sort of metal. And as you go over them, it creates them. He said, oh, stick at 25 kilometers or 30 kilometers, 30 miles an hour going over this bridge, Dick, while you're driving. He said, it creates a, a great rhythm. And Barry then looked at us. And as we drove, and he went, that was the rhythm, the bridge, you know, and he went, and that's what he went. He actually did it. He went. So he got to the studio and he picked up the guitar and he held a chord and he played the chord in that rhythm, you know, the intro like that. And then he went into these other chords, then straight strumming and they went away. He came back. That night, we didn't do that song. We cut another song. I can't remember. I have to look at the tracks and see which one it was. But after that, he said, look, that idea I had earlier, he said, I've got it. You know, it's something I you're jive talking, tell me lies, jive talking. He had a few lyrics and things, but he had had the, um, the chord sequence and the groove. So he said to Dennis, oh, play a groove to this. And he played the rhythm and Dennis came in and we playing. So he said, okay, we'll put a track down. We'll, we'll put a takedown. Uh, we'd only played the front bit with a straight four groove. And so we're playing. And I, I basically was playing what Barry was singing. I was playing on piano. I'm playing the melody on piano, basically, because it, I couldn't think of anything else at the time. So we did it. And then it came to this part where Barry started going into five, you know, into this. And, and Dennis looked and thought, what's going on with the rhythm? But he kept playing. And by the time he was going to do something, it had turned around. So we were back in on the fours. So the drums stay completely the same all the way through. And the riff turns around on itself and comes back again. We listened to it. We said, hey, God, that's great. The groove on this track is amazing. And I said, yeah, let's get a bass on there. Well, now this is about four o'clock in the morning or something like that. And I said, get Morris. Let's put a bass on straight away. Now let's find something. Uh, Tom O'Rody said, oh, no, Morris went home an hour ago. 
And, um, oh, God. And I looked in the synthesizer. Okay, I'll put a bass part on, I said. So I got the synthesizer and tried to make it sound like a bass guitar. But in doing it, it was still a little bit electronic. And I left that in there. And I put a sort of basic bass part on there. And then I remember it was myself, Alan and Barry. We got back to 461. It was getting light. We're sitting there. We'd opened a bottle of wine just to come down after the night. We put the cassette in the cassette player and we sat back and we listened to this track and looked out and we all looked at each other and said, fuck, that's it. That's amazing. And Barry said, that, that bass sound, that's, that's great. You know, that's, we've got to do it. You know, this is, it's so, and the way Barry was singing it, you know, like in that whispered voice, it's just, it was, it was so different. It just wasn't Bee Gees, you know? So we got back to the studio. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon the next day, five o'clock. I said, okay, we're going to do this bass part. We'll nail it. Well, the studio had speakers in the wall built in. And I set the, 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 the computer, I set the ARP 2600 right in the middle. I said, turn the drums up, crank the kick drum, and I'm going to work and fiddle out this bass part. And while I'm doing it, I'm getting the same sound as I did the night before, but I actually got more bass and more electronic. I thought, yeah, this is it. This is what, you know, this is what's so different and worked up. And I said, oh, my God. I said, who's going to tell Morris? And Barry said, you. <laughs> I said, oh, no, come on, you're his brother, you tell him. <laughs> or you ask, we ask him, you know, let's see. Then Arif walked in and looked and he, he just heard a big smile on his face and he said, yes. We all knew that that was it. So I sit and we, I got the bass part on and we just finished it and we're playing back. The door opens and Morris and Robin walk in and I look at Morris and Morris listens. And he said, oh, fuck, man, that's great. That's, oh, that's brilliant. That's great. And that was it. I said, you like it? He said, yeah, amazing. He said, it's great. It's a hit. Robin said, oh, this is amazing. This, this, this is it. You know, we've got something totally new. And I said to Morris, but you're the bass player. I said, this is in C. I said, you're going to be on here on the bass in one part. I said, tune your E string down to a C. <laughs> And you're going to put the depth in the beginning of it. So all he does on the beginning on the seat by goes, doo -doo. <laughs> and, and we mixed it in with the synthesizer just to give a little bit of depth. But I said, you know, I mean, but it's basically synthesizer there. I mean, there's no bass part as such. It's all that was only every time a C note happens, he plays it. And then we went on. But they then they finished the lyric and they're playing it to Arif. And Arif said, wait a minute, you've got the you've got it all wrong. He said, jive. Do you know what jive is? And they, well, uh, yeah. he said, no, it's not dancing. It's got nothing to do with dancing. It's street talk. You know, don't give me that jive, man, you know. And he said, that's what you've got to do in the thing. And he said, then you've got the street cred. You've got, you've got the lyric right, you know. And then, wow. then they rewrote some of the lyric part. To, to fit with that and we sort of did it and it was a, it was a dream and that I said to Barry oh that riff that you were singing uh, because all it was was him going that's on the record he's he's actually just we left that on there and then I just said to Carl okay I'm going to find a big synthesizer riff to put on this so <laughs> this was my Stevie Wonder dream come true my living in the city part instead of so I had that in mind and I just I created one and I I doubled it 
Then I said, okay, we put a delay on this. I want it huge, you know, put a very quick delay so that the riff is huge and coming out on both sides of the speaker's car, you know, and um, I wanted it in stereo. And we did that and we knew. And then Barry kept singing this riff at the end. He's actually singing and the brass are playing it at the same time. But if you listen to the record, you can hear Barry going. He's actually singing along with the... With, with, with the synthesizer riff. So we've got Jive talking, and once we've done that, we thought, that's it, we've got it.
then the next track after that, Barry said, oh, I've got this chords, um, <laughs> D minor, G and everything. And then it goes into this, oh, here we are in a room full of strangers, you know. And Nights on Broadway was the next track. So I worked out a piano intro on that. And then, of course, Morris said, you've got to put synth, synth bass on this again. So the synthesizing. But I've got a, quite a few number ones as a bass player as well. <laughs>
You were involved in the um, the songwriting as well, like Songbird, for example. Well, that was an accident again, completely sitting at the piano in four six one one night. That was a, a sort of it was like a sort of Packabell's Cannon sequence I had, and I'd written that during Straub's time. I'd come up with this uh, this chord sequence. I'd had it from some years, and just one night it came to me, and I'm sitting there, you know, playing that piano riff and playing the chords on the piano. And Barry was walking, and he said, oh, what's that you're playing? And I said, oh, it's something, an idea I have. He said, oh, play it again. So I started playing. And, you know, this is what's amazing. He starts singing, and generally what comes out of his mouth ends up, you know, as part of the of the lyric and is generally, the, you know, the punchline. And the first one, son, go on with your song, word, you can't go wrong. He started singing, and he went through the whole song, and he had various parts of lyrics you know, go on with your song, bird, da, 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 bird, da, 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 bird, you know, and then he'd sit down and then he'd, he'd finish up the lyrics and we'd go back, I'd play it again and he'd sing. So we did this one night and that was some weeks before the end of the album. Then we were getting to the end of the album and he said, oh, uh, we need another song. He said, we're going to record that song, bird song. I said, oh, great. And uh, so it ended up on the album.
and the same thing happened with you know um, the way it was on the second album. That was a, a riff I'd had from the same period, from some years before, playing one night, and we cut that track live, piano, bass, and voice. That was it. That was the basic track we cut one night. That went on to. It was actually called the Restless Years originally. Oh. I don't know why the publishing company changed the the title to um, the way it was. But actually, it most probably did me a big favor there because I'd forgotten about that song. And then one day I'm in, I'm in a record store and I'm going through some albums. I look at uh, Gladys Knight's greatest hits. I love Gladys Knight because with Amen Corner, we used to do Gladys Knight and the Pip songs and uh, In the Pocket and things like this. So I'm going through this album and I pick it up and I, I look and I see this title uh, the way it was, and I thought, oh, God, same title as but I like that. Then I look alongside the thing, Barry Gibbon, Blue Weaver. I thought, what? I didn't know she'd re- she. It, it's a live version that she maybe she needed a filler on on the album or something, but it definitely wasn't one of her greatest hits, you know. But it's on the album, you know? mm-hmm. and um, maybe she picked up on the title because it's so much like the way we were. <laughs> Get lonely now They keep appearing in my eyes Such a warm and tender glow For just one moment I remember all The love we had Was never all that bad There were smiles and there were tears On that special starry night With your arms around me Held on tight Wasn't that the way It was Two strangers reaching for A worthless To say goodbye Or even justify the end You meant so very much to me And to let you go Start my life again The love we shared Was never all that bad There were smiles and there were tears To that special summer's day when I reached out for you
it's incredible to think back that you were in the Bee Gees band when they were the biggest band in the world. I mean, Saturday Night Fever, wow. Uh, I mean, it was like a juggernaut for two to three years. I mean, that must have been an incredible period for you. It was. uh, And, you know, we we were in America all that time. I mean, my family was in London at the time because my children were going to school in, in South Kensington in the Lycée. And they didn't have a lease in Miami. So uh, I had a house in Miami and I had a house in London. But my family was there. So I was commuting, basically. Whenever I wasn't needed in America, I would fly back to, to London. And then sometimes only one night and then fly back again. Or I would get a call and come back. And, yeah, but at that time, you know, when did it come out? 1977, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that whole period. I remember... Robert threw a party in um, Rockefeller Center. We had the plaza. We had the whole of the ice rink. That was our, our dance floor, if you like. That was our party piece. And we had security guards all around. But there were all crowds around, you know, looking down on us and screaming and shouting, you know. But we, we had a party, that was, and it was great. And I remember the, the average white band being there and loads of other people. And But wherever you went in New York, it was you heard it you saw it you know it was Saturday Night Fever everywhere you know and then the party we had in Studio 54 um, that was incredible I mean it's hard to take it all in now when I think back at the time it was all everything was happening so quickly you couldn't really realize even the even the three of us you know we, we were getting a lot of attention then I mean obviously the Bee Gees were the focal point and everything but from musicians and people we knew and people that knew and saw the albums, you know, we were getting so much attention and stuff as well then. But the, that party in Studio 54, I remember it was crazy. I couldn't stand it downstairs. I was with my wife and we had like a private room upstairs and I went up and it was quiet and we could have a drink there and there was food and everything. So we sat down at the table and I don't know whether there were many tables there. I can't remember the, the whole situation, why this happened. Uh, but I'm sat down, I'm having a drink, we're having something to eat. And this sort of heavy guy comes up and looks and he said, uh, is this seat free here on this table? I said, yeah, sure. He said, okay. Then he waved to somebody to come over. And this guy came over and said, oh, good evening. You know, okay, mind if I sit here? I said, no, no, it's okay. It's free. We're eating like this. And I picked up my truck and I nearly spat it out. I looked over. It's Al Pacino. You know? <laughs> I'm on table with the Godfather. <laughs> and uh, you know, I thought, oh, great. Oh, hello. You know, he said, oh, hi. He said, I know, he said, I know. I said, that's no, fine. You know? And it was, it was really, it was really nice. We never bothered him, but he was talking. And I don't know, we got round to it, but he he said to me, I'm sorry about the bodyguard. He said, he said, I have to have a bodyguard. Everybody thinks I'm a tough guy. <laughs> he said, you know, it's like it, it's frightening sometimes for me. He said, I had to do it. And he, he he said, it's crazy. He said, I get old ladies asking to come up and kiss my ring, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he said it's like once you 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 you've done you know and i said oh you know he said but you know i said i'm i'm in the, you know i'm with the Bee Gees. and he said oh my god he said okay so now you know you know a bit what it what it feels like to have that sort of um image and everything i said yeah but not the the godfather you know <laughs> i said that, that's it's just crazy you know for people you know to think that he said, you know, and I, I realized 
it, it's like anybody that comes, it's like fans, isn't it? They, they, they see the image and then they believe what they're seeing. You know, it's, it's like, I, I don't want to sort of put any fans down or anything, but when, when you're an artist, where, like in what profession, even musicians, when you're on stage, it's your job. You're performing. Yeah. When you sit and you sign autographs and you have a photograph, you smile. It's your job. It's it's what you do. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say, but they, they you know they believe that that's what the person is and that's what they really like. Yeah. yeah. But Saturday Night Fever at that time was just unbelievable. Everywhere you went, everything we did, we couldn't do anything wrong. You know, every song, six consecutive number ones. Oh, a fan wrote to me once and said, "Oh, did you realize that?" Um, Two weeks ago, um, you ha- you were playing on eight records or seven records, eight records. He said in the top ten uh, on in Billboard. He said, "Do you realize you were on?" I said, "What? No, I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah. Just incredible."
how deep is your love? Although I don't think you got a songwriting credit, you certainly helped Barry along the way in terms of writing that. Two, two people and a piano in a room for the first hour. <laughs> and we were in the chateau. Wow. Uh, what happened was, it was we were up fairly early that day. I think it was about 12, 1 o'clock, which was pretty early <laughs> for us. This was lunchtime. <laughs> we tended to work late at night. And Barry said, oh, he said, I'm glad you're up. He said, I've just had a call from Robert. He said, we've got to write a love song. He said, they need a love song in the film. Come on. He said, we've got to write the best love song ever. So there was a room, beautiful room with, with a Steinway in. And I can remember with a, a stained glass window in. And we went in there and Chopin had stayed in the, in the chateau. I mean, there was no way, but this was an old Steinway. It was beautiful when I had visions of Chopin sitting at this piano and playing. So when I sat down, Barry said, oh, I want you to play me the most beautiful chord that you know. <laughs> this is to lead him in. So I sat there. So I knew E-flat was a great, a great key for him uh, because we'd done the way it was in E-flat. And, and that really suited his voice and everything. So I played a lead-in chord to lead him into E-flat, which was, it's an A-flat major seventh with a B-flat in the bass. It's like, I could play it to you and show you. But at any, any rate, I knew, he, we, you know, as soon as I played him this, he was going to have to sing up into the E-flat. And then also I was thinking of Chopin, and one of my favorite Chopin pieces was the Nocturne in E-flat. And if you listen to the Nocturne E-flat and you listen to How Deep Is Your Love, you'll see an influence there. But also if you listen to the way it was, which was in E-flat and the chord structure of that, you can put it together with, with How Deep Is Your Love as well. Yeah. So I played in this chord and we're straight into E-flat. And here again, it, it's amazing. I play in that and he goes, da 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 ba da the morning sun, straight out like that. Because what had happened, I don't know whether it was a coincidence, but I remember at that time, actually, the sun shining through the thing. And, it, you know, and I know your eyes in the morning sun, I see your eyes in the morning sun or whatever he sang at the time, you know. And we went on. And then the way we did it was I'd uh, go and I'd play something. I, I, he would sing a line and I'd find a chord to go behind it. And he'd say, oh, no, no, let's let's change that. So I'd find, oh, yeah, that's great. And so we went on for the first hour like this. And after a few minutes, he said, can you play that again? And I thought, oh, what did I play? Oh, damn. I turned around and I switched the cassette player on. And that was to remind me if we needed to go back and I needed to, if I'd done something and couldn't re recall what it was, that was there. Anyway, the cassette player was running all the way through. And then after about an hour, I think um, then... Uh, Robin joined and then maybe Morris as well I can't remember but by this time we had the whole structure of the song through and then um, Barry had some of the lyrics and I think they went off and they worked on the lyrics and then um, that was it I think the next day I had to go back to London yeah for a while I spent a couple of days at home then I went back to the chateau and then they put voices on and how deep is your love but then when we got to we, we actually re-recorded it when we got back to Miami we took the ideas from that. Then I worked out and I said, no, the real piano doesn't work. I'll use electric piano. I'll find a nice Fender Rhodes sound. And then I, I built up the intro. It was the first, I mean, I had the song in my mind. I had the melody. And I, in fact, that we, we had a click track playing through and I had um, the guy's voices there. So I'm playing a piano part with nothing else, just the click track and the voices. 
and I created the piano part. Wow. But as I said, I'm not a great keyboard player. I did, uh, you know, I did about 20 tracks of piano and then went in and we took the best bits out of all of it and made one complete piano track for it. And then we put drums on, then we put bass, and then we put the, we built up the track like that. Then when it was finished, I had to sit and listen to the piano part and learn it. <laughs> See, I mean, I knew I played all the bits, but I couldn't remember in, in which order I played it all, you know. So I had to sit and learn the track to play it, you know, live on stage. But uh, but that's the way we built up tracks then. You know, we'd do bits at a time. Um, we'd start off with all of us in the in, in the studio, maybe, and sometimes not, you know, like with Staying Alive, no. That's uh, four bars of the drums from Night Fever on that. softly 
you did get a, a co-writing credit with Barry on Our Love Don't Throw It All Away, which eventually became a hit for Andy Gibb. But I think uh, you and the Bee Gees might have recorded it first. Was that right? Yeah, we did. Well, it was a demo we, we made right. for Andy. I mean, we, we recorded it. But it, I mean, when I say it was a demo, we never, ever did any demos. We just recorded a song, you know, <laughs> that was it. Yeah. yeah, what happened there was we were in the shadow and Barry said, oh, Andy needs another song. He needs to release another song. Let's let's write. Let's try and get him a love song. Actually, I got two million uh, BMI PRS performances on that back in, in 1986 or something. So I don't know how many done. And um, they said to me then, "Do you realize one million plays is 98,000 consecutive hours of music?" So I mean, what was great about that track? It's played on every Love FM station in, in America. It was in every way. You know? And then a few few years later, back, I got another call from Barry saying, oh, um, somebody who wants to record uh, Our Love, Don't Throw It All Away. Barbara, he said, uh, is it okay if uh, Barbara Streisand records it? Wow. So it's on, on their second, on the Guilty Pleasures album, I think.
you worked quite a bit with Robin, including with Jimmy Ruffin. Yeah, Hold On To My Love. Yeah, that was, well, we did a whole album uh, called Sunrise. Uh, yeah, the end of 1979, I think we started recording that in Syosset in, in New York. Robin had a house there. But the idea came because uh, myself and Robin, before I bought my own house in, in Miami, I was staying with Robin and we were sitting down late one night and we said, God, there's so many people. He said he he was crazy. He used to look through billboard charts, you know, all the magazines for years. And he, he, he had a, a memory. He could. He said there's so many people that just had sort of one great record and are great singers and you never hear of them again, you know. And he said, oh, there's so many people that had, you know, quite a few good records, but never got to the stage where they should have done, you know. He said, like Dusty Springfield, for instance. I said, oh, great. And he said, oh, what? And I said, well, let's write a song. Let's let, let's do songs for these people. Let's find artists like this and we can create and try and get them hits again. And he said, yeah, great idea. So sort of dusty. And then we spoke with Arif because he'd record an album with her and he advised us actually at that time. He said, look, she's a lovely lady, but it may be a little bit too difficult to work with at the moment. And then we we're going through and we thought, oh God, who else? What Becomes of the Broken Hearted came on, I think, and we said Jimmy Ruffin. So Robin put the feelers out, got Jimmy, and we, we got him, and that's it. We we, we wrote songs and, and produced an album for him, and we had a huge hit with Hold On To My Love. But what was unfortunate was that RSO, it went out on RSO, and RSO sold up, closed down. So there were no more albums printed. Just as it's doing really well, we've got hit in the charts and people couldn't buy the records. They couldn't get the album or anything. It was never repressed, never re-released.
soon after that that way of working certainly led to help me yes. the music on Times square marcy levy and robin gibb yeah well bill oaks phoned me up actually i got a call on a sunday night saying we need you in new york you know tomorrow morning i said oh okay he said i want you to do some music on on a movie that we're doing and um he said you you can do some background music and maybe come up with some songs and stuff so uh, he said, there'll be a ticket waiting for you at Heathrow tomorrow morning. Wow. <laughs> he said, your flight goes at 11 o'clock or something. So I got to Heathrow and I went to the British Airways desk and I said, there's a ticket waiting for you, uh, Mr. Weaver. I said, my name's Weaver. Oh, yes. They said, okay, here's your ticket. And they said, uh, the Concord Lounge is that way. If you go through, uh, you'll be taken care of, you know. So I get through. I'm in the Concord Lounge. I'm thinking, what? And I God, I'm flying to New York Concord. Great. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the Concord lounge and I look around and there's one of my heroes sitting over Dudley Moore. And I thought, oh, God, there's Dudley Moore. Oh, no, I can't go over and speak to him. <laughs> and uh, and then I hear Dudley go, hey, Dickie, Dickie. And I look over and there's Richard Attenborough there as well, you know, and there's and they're chatting. And there, there was some other, I can't remember, but it was there was a crowd of faces there. So we're getting on the plane now. I was looking at everybody. I think I was a little bit, I was one of the last ones getting on. And I'm walking into Concord. I couldn't believe how small it was and ducked down. But I was so excited. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if I'm sitting next to Dudley Moore? And I see him sitting in an aisle seat down the thing there. And I'm going along and I'm looking at my numbers and I get down and I get there and I look. And I thought, fuck, I can't believe it. And I said, I can't remember what number is it, 20A, is that 20B? He said, yeah. He said, in the window seat there, I'm sat next to Dudley Moore wow. in Concord. And we're flying over to New York. Anyway, I was 
trying to be as cool as I could with him. And my introduction was nothing to do with comedy. I said, Dad, I go down the speakeasy. I've watched your trio playing down there. I said, I've seen you in the bull's head and at the place. I said, oh, it's great. He said, oh, are you a musician? I said, well, sort of. I said, you know. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, it's great. He said, and then we started talking about music. And then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, the other thing I love is your scene. He'd done a movie with Goldie Horn. I've forgotten what it's called. And which was hilarious. It was a, with a little dwarf in. And she thought the dwarf was trying to kill her. But Dudley Moore is a conductor of an orchestra in this. And Dud is, he, he was absolutely amazing. And, and he's doing this whole bed routine to, to staying alive. <laughs> he thinks... She she goes with Dudley Moore because she wants she she needs to be saved. She needs to get into a flat. So he thinks that he's pulled. So he's got her in the bedroom and he, he's got like a man flat, you know, and he, he's got a remote control. And like just when he thinks he's got it like this, he presses this button and the bed comes down from the wall and staying alive starts playing uh, and he's dancing to staying alive. Uh, an inflatable doll flies out of the bed, you know, a uh, sex doll. And everything, and and she's oblivious to it all, and he thinks it's great, you know. And he's dancing. I mean, but the whole movie was great. And I said, oh, he said, oh, what? I said, yeah. I'm, I said, I'm in the Bee Gees. I I played what, and that was it. You know, <laughs> we're drinking on our way to New York, you know, and and just talking. It was fantastic. I can't believe that it happened, you know. So then when you got there, then you were were recording. Um, Help me then. Well, I got there and went straight to the studio. Then Bill Oak said, we're doing this movie called Times Square. And the first thing I did was some incidental stuff just to fill out the tracks and everything. Then he said, um, look, he said, we, we, we need a song. There's a dance track with um, Tim, what's the actor's name? He was in the Rocky Horror Show as well. Um, Tim Curry. Yeah, Tim Curry. He said, he's a DJ and we need a song for him to dance to in this thing, you know. So um, then I went off to to Miami and um, myself and Robin wrote, uh, help me. And then I said, oh, it'd be great to have it as a duet with you and Marcy. Cause I, I we'd use Marcy on the Jimmy Ruffin album. Yeah. And so that's the way that came about.
you're also known for working quite a bit with the Pet Shop Boys in the, the mid eighties. Yes. Well, I started working with the Pet Shop Boys because I had a studio. I had a thing called a Fairlight at the time where there weren't many around because they were so expensive. And I built up a studio in Chiswick, in the back of my house in London, just with the Fairlight. At that time then, the radio stations, they were limited with playing. They couldn't keep repeating their track. I think it could only be played so many hours in one day. Do you remember that? This was in the 80s. All right, and there were restrictions. Um, there, there was, a, there was a, a limit on how many times. So the, the way around that was to actually record a track um, for the radio station. So they came to me to um, record. Um, and Tom Watson actually gave me a load of, load of tracks and said, look, take your pick out of these, you know, see what you want to, to you can produce uh, as well. So that's how I got to know them. We recreated a lot of the tracks that they did um, with Stephen Haig, all the hits, West End Girls. Yeah. I recre- recreated them because that way then they could get more plays on the radio stations. And we would actually go to Capitol and record the tracks there. But because it was with the with the Fairlight, I'd have all the backing already done and everything. And the guys would, Neil would only have to sing, you know. Yeah. So we were doing this a lot around all the radio stations and around the country as well. They said, oh, it would be, we've been asked to do a live gig. I did the very first live gig that the Pet Shop Boys ever did. We did it in the ICA. It was a special Max Headroom show. <laughs> now we had Max, we did a live Max Headroom show from the ICA, Max Headroom with the Pet Shop Boys. We were backstage. It, it took something like eight hours for his makeup to be put on. And we could see how it was all done with the, I mean, it was incredible. But I've got two Fairlights hooked up and we've got masses of screens behind with the, the sequences running from the Fairlight. We'd rehearsed all the tracks beforehand and they sort of had a, a few tracks that they could do live. But they said, oh, we can't do it all ourselves. You need to play as well. So I'm operating the Fairlights with the backing and playing and they're playing. And the track that I did with them, I want to love her. I said to Chris, oh, you've got to play trombone on this. So it's the only time he's ever tri- played trombone live on stage <laughs> at this ICA gig. I wish there was a video of it, but it doesn't exist, you know. But Stephen Haig was there in the audience. I don't know how good or how bad it was, but we had fun. And it was a great gimmick for Max Headroom as well, because it was another computer, you know, that was being, generating the music.
So then another time they had to do a movie called um, it could I think the movie was called It Couldn't Happen Here. And they wanted Ennio Morricone to write an arrangement for this song called It Couldn't Happen Here that uh, they'd written. And they sent it off to him and he said, look, I love it. He said, but I haven't got time, uh, but I've sent it to a friend of mine, uh, Angelo Badalamenti, and who ha was having a hit with the TV series at the time. And so he did an arrangement. Then he sent the charts over. Then he said, look, I haven't got time to come and do the orchestra. You have to get another conductor or something like that. So we were sitting there and we said, well, look, we've got a fair light. I've got great string sounds. Let's see. This would be a little bit futuristic as well, doing a, a real um, orchestra score in the Fairlight. So I, I did that. And that's good. That's always been a good talking point as well. Fabulous. Because yeah. I was trying to get the expression that he did in, because I could read the score and uh, David Jacobs was there. And to make it quicker, we were working together as I was writing the parts because I had sometimes I had to program the parts and sometimes I had to play because there was no expression in the samples. So we had to do the expression with volume. So he was reading, David was reading the score with me as well. So as I was playing, he was putting the expressions into the strings. So instead of having, you know, we were mixing it practically as we went along, you know, as well. So that was good. So I did a few more things with the Pet Shop Boys. Then I remember we did uh, also, oh God, what was the young girl? Um, she had some hits. You're not talking Patsy Kensit, are you? Patsy Kensit, yeah. We, yeah, we did some stuff with Patsy Kensit as well. Yeah. yeah, I'd forgotten all the stuff I'd done with the Pet Shop Boys. It was quite varied.
Chris was always amazed because he asked me, he'd seen about the Bee Gees show and about tragedy and how the explosions and everything. And I told him, because I used to set the explosions off every night. <laughs> what, what, what happened was there's two explosions in tragedy. The first one would happen, would be up from the lights above and all this glitter would drop down. But there wasn't any noise from it. So I created an explosion on the keyboard and I had a big button to set the explosion, you know, there were actually um, explosions, you know, to set off up there. And I had this big red button on the side of the, on the side of the keyboards. I would hit for the sound. I would hit the keyboard to make the um, explosive sound. And I would hit the big red knob at the same time to set the explosions off. It was better that way because they were completely in sync. And the, the front of the house guy would push the level up to make the explosion loud. So the first one would go up on the side. The second one was in big bins at the side. Now, this was an explosion. You didn't hear the noise so much, but you felt it. You know, it was like, I don't know what they use, but um, <laughs> but there's a great story. I think it was Madison Square Gardens we were in. We did nine shows in seven days, I think, in Madison Square Gardens or eight shows in seven days. Uh, but one night... We had our own stage. Now, the stage was about 10 feet high, 15 feet high. So we had steps going up to it. And so we're all up on there. And the stage was actually amazing. It had all the disco floor lights from Saturday Night Fever, which, 
was amazed me because the only people who could see it were the people in the cheapest seats, all the ones that had paid a lot of money. You couldn't see that dance floor as such. I mean, we had a laser show. It was good in any case, but um, but you could only see those lights from sitting up high. Well, the way that the the explosions went off in tragedy, right, they, they would set them up in the afternoon. The first one was up in the top. So it's all connected to this button. So I would set the first one off. Then the roadie would crawl underneath the stage, flick the, the relay over so that when I hit the button again, the other ones would go off. So this one night we're playing tragedy like this. So I've set the first explosion off, right? And it's great. And everybody's, yeah, yeah, like this. So we're halfway through the second verse and suddenly the other one, the other explosion goes off and it was a really big one. And I didn't do anything. And the Bee Gees dropped the mics, were down on the knees. Everybody sort of hesitated. We, we it was it was like crazy. And they're all looking at me. And I said, I did nothing. I did nothing. And I looked down and I see the roadie crawling out from under the side of the stage. <laughs> and he's all he's sort of, you know, he'd been pretty close to the explosion, the actual bins at the time with the even what had happened was the but, button had stuck down after I'd hit it after the first explosion. The button was stuck. And so when he flicked the relay, it was on go. He hit the relay, right? And of course, it's completely the wrong wrong place. Anyway, we carried on playing, and then they gradually got up off their knees and picked the mics up and carried on singing. <laughs> and then Barry said something at the end, you know, well, certainly that certainly was a tragedy, wasn't it? You know. And, uh, but um, I, I told Neil and Chris this story, and and Chris always said, oh, man, oh, that must be great. What a great feeling to set off an explosion on stage. And, of course, he does it every 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 concert they do now. He can do that ten times bigger than we, we ever did. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think every time I watch it, I see a clip or something with some pyrotechnics or something, I think Chris has got a button there. You know, he's, he's hitting that. <laughs>
Strobes from the album Settlement and Strange Times. That's a, uh, one of uh, David's songs. And the backing of it as well feels quite um, evocative of the strange times we're living in, really. Exactly. I just heard that. I thought, God, what a such a beautiful song. You know, the way he sings it, I got him to sing very close to the mic and softly, you know, and I and I left it yeah. deliberately with you know a lot of breathing in. Um, but the, the guitar part that he played me, um, he sent me this guitar, and the in the sound is because of the tuning he uses, and uh, he explains that. Don't ask me because I, I I mean I can play a bit of guitar, but as far as the tuning and the stuff is concerned, he he comes up with some really odd tunings, but it sounded amazing. So I just doubled that one guitar part. And uh, I made it into a um, because there were there wasn't any ambience on his guitar because of the way he had to record it in in his in the bedroom, uh, so to speak. So I just put a, a sort of a slight delay on it. I just tried to keep it where there's you know the guitar was the main thing. I didn't want any other backing in that. I just thought I've got to make it sound you know a little bit special, and I didn't want to to add anything else on there. You know, sort of map the guitar out. And I got the sound on there. Then we sent it off and I got Chaz to put just a bass part down. I said, just put a simple bass part down and um, wasn't sure what else was going to go on at the time. So then Dave said, oh, I can do another vocal. So I sent him the guitar with the bass on. So he's got a sort of backing there. And I thought, oh, I've, I've got to put something else on there to give him inspiration. So I, I, I put some strings on. And then when I was putting the strings on, I, ha- I came up with a little piano part as well, just really simple. And I, I didn't want to take away from the guitar. And I sent him and then he-, he did the voice again. And I got it back and I listened and I thought, oh, yeah, that's it. When I listen to it now, I still, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck go up. And then I look at the lyric and everything. And I think, great. And that was it. We- I didn't do any more- anything else to that to that song, just left it the way it was. I mean, I like all the songs on the album. <laughs> um, they're all sort of special. But that one, every time I listen to it, it's still... Because just the, the way he sings it, there's some emotion there.
courting Times the pain Times when all Was lost in vain Times of yearning Times of hope Such are these strange times I think with this album, what I tried to do was even on things like We Are Everyone, where he's really singing at the top of his voice, I still tried to keep him a, a lot softer than he would have been normally. I, I think his voice has gone a lot so, softer over the years, but he can still belt it out if he really wants to, you know. But I said, no, I said, try, try and hold back a bit. I said, um, it's hard to do that and reach the notes as well, because you really, you know, you need power sometimes because he, he's at the top of his range in some of those parts. But I think we managed, and I think the whole, yeah. the whole album, his voice sounds a, a lot mellower than it would do normally. <laughs> Uh, but with sometimes more aggressive backing, you know. Fabulous. So a high point for for Strobes, and it's great for you to continue to be part of the Strobes family. Yeah, I still, I mean, I've always felt, I, I've never really left the band as such, you know. I mean, I, I went back and did various gigs over the years, and I, I think once you've been with Strobes, you always feel uh, an attachment there. Yeah. And it's been great. I mean, they, you know, we did the the 50th, 
concert. I I did the 40th and the 30th, I think, and maybe the 20th. I can't remember which ones, but we've done special gigs over the years like that and tried to get as many members together as possible, past members. It's incredible to to imagine all the ripples that you've made across 50, 60 years and the artists and, and people that you've influenced. Um, a, a real privilege to talk to you. And I, I enjoy it, as, as, you, as you can hear. <laughs> Once you get me talking, it's hard to stop. So hopefully when this COVID thing goes, everything can just get reactivated and, and, and moving again and um, you'll be out there. Well, we've got, we've got gigs booked with, for, with, the, with the Italian Bee Gees now for 2022, right. January, February and March. We're doing Poland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland. We've got some gigs booked there Brilliant. to do the show, and we'll bring RJ in on that. And we'll it will be sort of rehearsals again, building up to what we can do, hopefully, sometime in the future. You've got a website, haven't you? Probably worth mentioning that. Yeah, I think it's working still. It's blueweaver.com, but yeah. maybe the best link is saturdaynightweaver.com. Right. All one word, just sat- oh, Saturday Night Weaver. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, that, so that's that's the way that people can can find out what your past, your current activities. Yeah, there's a lot on there. I I, I haven't updated it much recently. Yeah, uh, I try to put on there as much as I can. But there's also the Facebook page as well. Yeah, there's Facebook. Thank you again. It's been it's been a real privilege. Huge, it's hugely appreciated. Thanks, thanks so much for your time. You've been so generous. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye, Jason.
you hear my song Sing together, join together Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.